Welcome to Potential Show. This is a show where we sit down with founders and investors to talk about their stories and secrets to succeed in the international startup world and make an impact on society. So before this episode begins, let me introduce Justin a little bit more so you will get to know the context and enjoy this show even more. So Justin, he started his first company when he was 19. The company was called Zynga, a social game developer. And it went public only after four years of founding at the valuation of $7 billion. After that, Justin left Zynga and became a full-time Android investor investing in more than 50 companies, and his portfolio include Tolo, which was acquired by Google, Viv, acquired by Samsung, and also some YC-backed companies like Lambda School, Substack, and some Japanese companies like Smartland, and also he's an LP in Peter Thiel's Founders Fund. Now, talking about his first company, Zynga, it's well-known for titled Zynga Poker and Firmville. Firmville revealed its popularity within only six weeks of releasing and attracted over 10 million users. Well, this was possible thanks to their amazing team, but also thanks to their top two investors like SoftBank Capital, Google, Union Square Ventures, Kleiner Perkins, SB Angel, and more. Now, talking about his newest company, Playco, it's a Tokyo-based gaming venture funded by Justin Walden, and former CEO of Game Closure, Michael Carter. And also, this was started by other prominent video game producers, Takeshi Otsuka and Teddy Kloss. Their vision is to democratize the gaming experience where users can instantly play video game on any device without downloading an app. This means, for example, I wanna play a game on a Zoom call. I can just do that by sharing the hyperlink to the title on a Zoom chat. Boom, I can play the game. Now, talking about Playco, we gotta mention about their successful 100 Series A round, which was led by Josh Buckley at Sequoia Capital. The round was also participated by other prominent venture capital firms like Sozo Ventures, Caffeinated Capital, Makers Fund, and also KSK Honda's KSK Angel Fund, and Will Smith's Dreamers VC, and Tyson's Mistletoe. What made Justin this successful? What's the story? What's the secrets behind all this? You want to know it? Now, let's listen to this episode with Justin Warden. For today, we have Justin, co-founder and former senior vice president of Zynga, which is top social gaming platform. Zynga went public in 2011, at valuation of 7 billion, raising 1 billion, which is the largest IPO since Google back then. Uh, after he left Zynga, he became a full-time Android ambassador. Uh, he also recently co-founded a new gaming company, Playco, with Michael Carter. Uh, currently, he serves as the president of the new company uh, and announced successful 100 million Series A. Um, Justin, thank you so much for being here today. Yeah, I'm excited to be here. Thanks, Rio. Thank you. Um, so I really want to cover a lot of things about you. Uh, and you, after you dropped out of college and started the company with six other co-founders, was it? Was it four, five co-founders? Um, 
Yeah, well, so so what what happened what happened there is uh, I I was in university when when the the Facebook platform was released, and so I got really excited about it. And so the first day it came out, I, I went and I, I built an app as quickly as I could, um, and I put something up the first day the platform was released, and I was just interested in connecting people to play games actually. And um, a lot of people don't know this story, but there was uh, at the time. The Nintendo Wii had these these friend codes, which were like a very long telephone number that you could share with your friends so that you can play a Wii game with them. But it was very difficult to share these numbers. So I just made a very simple application on Facebook where you could put in your friend code number and then you could see all the friend code numbers of all the other people who are your friends on Facebook. So you could very easily come on uh, the Nintendo Wii. And, um, you know, Mark Pincus, the, the CEO of Zynga, he reached out to me and just said, Hey, this is this is really interesting. You know, like, uh, why don't we go build some social apps together? And that was sort of how mm. things got started. Um, and the first app we went and built was a was a poker app because at that time Facebook was was all college students and you know right. uh, college students in the U.S. loved poker at the time, myself included. Um, so that was that was sort of what what got everything started. Oh wait, so that was when Facebook was not public for um, people like you know older than college students. So it was only for college students. Facebook. Uh, yeah, I'm, I'm not sure the exact time that Facebook switched over and, and started adding other people in the US. Mm -hmm. um, but like the platform was was right around the same time. Yeah. So even if they had already opened it up, it was like still majority college students. I can't remember the exact timing. Ah, I see. That, that's why it was like a really good kind of marketing tool or platform for you guys, right? Making games for Facebook users. Well, and that's and that's kind of the idea, which is like, what are what was the right and the perfect thing to make for those for those people who are using Facebook at the time. So rather than this idea of going and making a company that would eventually be about making games for everybody, um, you know, really this, this smaller idea of what do college students want to do with each other? And at that time it was play poker. <laughs> and then once we did that, built that experience and we realized when we played it, wow, this is, this is very different from, uh, from any experience we've had playing poker online before, um, having the real names and the real photos and connecting with your friends automatically. This is a different experience. And then so mm -hmm. after that, this is a whole new type of game. We've got to go do this with as many different types of games as we can. Um, and, and so like, I think that a lot of these, these ideas, you know, they start small. So of course we always had like big aspirations to build a, a larger company. Um, but we, we started by experimenting and then we sort of figured out what worked and went from there. Right. And that really worked, right? So um, you launched the, the best known game, which was, I think, Firm Bill uh, on Facebook in June 2009. And it reached 10 million daily users uh, within six weeks. That's a, that's a pretty good uh, viral growth that you had, right? What, what would you say was the, you know, the viral growth uh, driver? Was it just Facebook advertising, Facebook platform, or what, what else was, was there, would you say? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that there were just there were a lot of things happening at once that were new um, mm. back. Then. So like w one was this idea of a new business model before before that time, all games were paid for up front. And it was something where you went to the store and you spent $50 and you got a game. And the only thing you knew about that game was what you read in a video game magazine and the reviews that you saw and what you mm. the commercial watched and the movie poster that you saw hanging on the, the, the wall in the store. And um, we took that model and we basically said, no, you can try it for free. Um, and then you can play as long as you want. And, uh, and then if you like it, you can also invite your friends and you can also spend money if you want. And if you don't want to, that's also fine. Um, 
the thing about making it free is like that opened up this idea that you could play with anyone because if I wanted to play a game with you, but I also had to convince you to spend $50 on the game, well then that's, that's very high friction. Um, right. And so the business model enabled it to be social. And then when it's social, then we could actually redesign the whole game to be something that wasn't really something you, you could play by yourself. So if you think about it, like the games that you, you would buy for the console, they had to have a single player mode because, um, you know, in most situations, you didn't have a friend over to play with. Um, but the games that you played online, we thought the default should be should be social. It should be something you can do with somebody else. Um, and so when you look at a game like Farmville, um, the, the, it's it's not like one single thing that we did. It's sort of a combination of of that realization. And how do you take these these new business models and these this new distribution through the social channels um, in this this new experience where people can just land on a page and play a game, um, and then builds a space that people want to spend time with each other in it. And so um, Farmville was like sort of in a lot of ways, um, this, this, the first time that, that it was easy to, with your friends, go and like hang out in a virtual space that didn't require you to be there um, at the same time. It wasn't like a live virtual world. It was a very casual, build your space, let your friends visit, you go visit your friends. And um, we learned a lot from the games we released before Farmville to to understand you know what what players wanted and and to to basically have a really good idea of how to build that game in a way that people would enjoy and so even though um farmville was really the moment that our, our company became famous for like the broader sort of technology community uh by the time that we had released farmville like zynga already had many games that were very large for for like these other players and um we just weren't really talking about it more more broadly yet Mm, I see. What, what were those other games? Was it like a Zynga Poker or Friend with Two? A Words with Word with Friends Two or those games you were talking about? Yeah, I mean the early, the earliest, the first game was was Zynga Poker, and so mm. um, I, I was the original engineer on Zynga Poker. And um, oh, really? <laughs> the product manager behind like the initial initial design. Um, I and that game is still very um still very popular today and that was the first game that we built at the company mm. um so like actually um that was years before farmville right and so we had a game called mafia wars that was very big there was a game called yoville that was very big it was the largest virtual world in the world at the time um so in, from each one of these games we sort of learned another set of things about what types of things that people wanted to do when they were playing with their friends um, and we just kept sort of building on it with each new new game that we would release. Right. And according to the Zynga's website, 57 million uh, games being played at any given moment, right? And also after four years of founding, uh, you went public um, at a valuation of 7 billion, raising $1 billion. And um, what, what, what would you say, um, you know, Right now, so so your viral growth at the time was maybe a Facebook platform, and how, you know how you kind of picked the thing that would uh, would be viral for those college students. But um, now you funded uh, Playco, and also you invested in a bunch of companies. Would you say the driver for those viral growth has changed in the past decade? Which what would what would you say is the new uh, driver for viral growth? Yeah, I mean, I think I think what we've seen is is that the the market for for startups and just for consumer experiences is, is mm. bigger than it's ever been. I mean, um, it, just to give you an idea, when we started Zynga, Facebook was 20 million users. Uh, when oh. we IPO, <laughs> Facebook was about 200 million users. And at this time, it just felt so big 
I mean, it felt huge. And, and now, you know, Facebook has almost 3 billion users, I believe. Um, and, and so there's been over 10x growth since then. And so I, I think that the, the, the main thing that's changed is more people globally are all connected and part of these, uh, these ecosystems now. And so on some level, you'd expect that any could, anybody should be able to very easily uh, play with their friends. Like after all, we, we all have a phone um, and we're sure. all connected to the phone. And uh, we have the app stores and we have these ways of, of downloading and, and using great content. Um, but it gets back to that point I was mentioning earlier, which is about friction. And this idea that um, for me to play with you, I need to convince you to go and play too. And right. one friction that we removed previously was the idea of spending money upfront. And that was really important to make games that you could play with your friends. And another piece of friction that's now uh, part, of, part of the problem in our view is, is this idea that um, you have to download these apps upfront and right. everything lives in the apps. And right. this is a, an experience that although it's um, not as bad as going and spending $50 at a, a store, Sure. Um, it, it's, it's actually today, you know, downloading apps is something that most people don't look forward to doing. Some of them are very large. They require you to connect to Wi-Fi. It takes time. You got to create a new account. It's sort of like this experience that we've, we've, um, we do it for the apps that we really are convinced that we need and that we want. Um, but when it comes to trying out a new experience with a friend, something serendipitous, it's, it, it really gets in the way. Um, and so we, we feel like if, if you want to do something with a friend and convince them, hey, let's try this out. People don't usually do that with apps because it feels like too much work just to get started. Right. And so our insight is that, you know, using te technology that we've created, you know, whether it be streaming or, or web-based um, technologies, we can create this experience where I can share you something. And when you tap it, you're immediately jumping into an interesting experience with me that's fun. Um, and by doing that, we can get back to this idea where we don't lose all the people that would otherwise leave all through all those different steps of the app installation and sort of setup process so that people have confidence when they share with their friends that, oh, my friend will probably jump in because it's just as easy as sending like a GIF or something in a, in a messenger. So Right. Yeah, I, I definitely feel that. So I, I think you are in the you were an ambassador in the startup world. And also, you know, I live in this industry and Usually a lot of people are like, you know, founders come to me and Rayon, please download this app. I made this app. And then like some, a lot of people come to me and I'm like, you know, oh, I only have this data available there. Or, uh, you know, I, I can only use another two gigabyte until it gets November, right? But if you don't have to actually download app, I think, yeah, that will definitely remove a lot of friction. Uh, but also I think, not just from the user side, but also for the developer side, it's a good thing, right? If you don't have to go through uh, Apple Store or Android Store, since Apple Store or Android Store, they take the what they call Apple tax or the platformer fee, right? Um, and I believe the Zynga, um, in the beginning, Zynga, um, you know, uh, people uh, on the Facebook platform, you could just download uh, things from Facebook, but uh, Facebook started to charge fee uh, for those people uh, that's making money on the Facebook platform. And that was maybe one of the reasons why Zynga uh, kind of, you know, Zynga's uh, growth kind of plateaued. Uh, what, what would you say about this? Yeah, I mean, there's, so 
Uh, there's there's a couple a couple pieces in there, I guess. Um, sure. One, <laughs> Sorry. Yeah. One, no, no, no problem at all. I, I, there's a, there's a lot of interesting things to talk about here. Um, like, one is I would say, for us, we we um, some some people in the past have thought about like web technologies as a way of sort of getting around um, the idea of of paying uh, what they call an app store tax. Like, um, yeah. I, from our perspective, like being able to easily uh, engage with users in a way where they can spend money if they enjoy our products is really important to us. And I, and I think like it's important to us that it's a good experience for the users. And so if, if Apple um, charges, you know, whatever percent that they can charge and that the market will bear, that's fine by us. Um, and, and we're not trying to build this technology as a means of, of getting around um, any sort of payments infrastructure, because we think it's, it's really about the experience we're trying to create. Um, and, and I think that Apple's part of that experience and Google's part of that experience, you know, the, the, the payments platforms they create are, they, they provide a lot of value because they, they make it very easy for users to, to participate in these, these types of, uh, small transactions and, um, you know, whether or not, whatever the appropriate fee is, is, is sort of like above, above my pay grade. Um, but, but we're just working with them because we think they, they help us monetize these users in a way that's, um, good for everybody. Um, I guess on the on the Zynga side, what's interesting about that story is like we just we started building games on on the Facebook platform, and and Facebook didn't really anticipate that games were going to be one of the main uses of of the platform. And it sort of seems obvious in hindsight, but if you look at the original announcement, um, there wasn't much talk of games or any really. Um, and this whole idea that people would go and spend money inside of games was also a totally new idea, so that wasn't mentioned at all. Um, and so we had to go and build the infrastructure and, and the design for games for people to even go and do this. And so um, because it didn't exist, we built it and then we, we got better at it and better at it. Um, and then eventually when it became a, like a large business, we had to figure out like, how do we, how do we make sure that everybody's interests are aligned, you know? And so that was, that was when we had to figure out with Facebook, just like what would make sense in terms of um, they wanted to provide some, some payments processing at the platform level, because not everybody could afford to build the infrastructure that we built at Zynga um, right. to do this. They wanted to enable all the developers to do it. And of course, um, as part of that, they, you know, they wanted everyone to be on the same infrastructure. So the experience was good for the user. And so we just had to sort of figure out a way to, um, take everything and, and, you know, make it uniform for the user. I see. Interesting. Um, so would you say that, uh, this Apple tax or Android tax or Facebook tax, whatever that they take, uh, is, in to some extent in the interest of developers because they they're they're not rich enough they don't have the cap enough capital to build a payment system and actually apple android they actually cover that part well i mean i, I think that it's the, the thing about that um the the payments processing fee is that there are a lot of implied services um that are rolled into that payments processing fee so like mm -hmm. It, it, it's, you know, you're, you're paying for Apple to, to check the security and the quality of all these apps that are being published in the app store um, that aren't your app. Maybe there are a bunch right. of apps that don't make any revenue at all. And, and these transactions are paying for the, all the quality assurance that's happening across the whole ecosystem. And, um, you know, just these other sorts of distribution around the downloads and all these other things that are sort of rolled up into these costs. And so I think what makes it a bit complicated is if you look at a company like, um, like a Stripe, or a, a company that's in the business of processing payments, their fees are much lower, right? Because they're just only really processing payments in most situations. Um, and so it, from that perspective, it's easy to look at the like a 30% rate and say, 
wow, that, that seems kind of high. Um, but then there's all these other services that are sort of bundled with that. And I think that ambiguity has, has left a lot of room for argument. And that's why you're seeing people say like, what is the fair fee? Um, and, you know, I, I just, I, I think, I, like I said before, like, I don't really, I don't really know. Um, and who knows, like, we'll, we'll just have to see over the next few years how it shakes out. Right, right. Okay. And so, um, got it. Okay. So I want to talk about your, um, the process of making the Zynga games, right? You were the senior vice president of the firm. So you probably know all the process. So what was the process like? So right now, I think lean startups all kind of process or kind of popular in the venture world. Maybe it's a little bit old concept, but, uh, I think it's still popular. So at the time when you were making game, how was it like, you think like, you know, maybe the college student like poker, okay, let's make like poker for this amount of users and then see the market reaction and then maybe reflect some feedback from the users. What was it like? Yeah, I mean, it, it, it changed throughout the whole history of the company, right? Like it, it's, it's hard to generalize because we, we grew from, you know, five people to, to 3000 and uh, four years. Um, mm. So, of course, like the process of developing a product, choosing what to build, how you staff it, um, the cost of developing, all those things changed over time. But one thing in common is just like validating your ideas as early as possible, which is what, you know, sort of lean development is really all about. Mm. Um, what I would say is like in game development, that's particularly um, challenging. And it's, it's a great sort of muscle memory to be able to build over time is this whole idea of like, fun is a very subjective feeling and um you know and if you're building like a SaaS product you have a sort of feature set of features that your clients want and maybe somebody right. tells you give me this feature um i'm willing to pay this much for it mm -hmm. and it, maybe they'll even give you that in a contract before you build the feature um whereas in a game um no one will give you any guarantees of of how they'll respond before you build something so you right. really need to become an expert in like the um, predicting what it is that that people how they will behave when you actually release something and so the best way that um, I found to do that is like you just have to really be rigorous about writing down your assumptions about why you're doing something um, and then after you you release a feature you have to be uh, go back and check your work and say like mm -hmm. what about my assumptions was right and what what about my assumptions was wrong and it's not really like an exercise to sort of beat yourself up and say like, look, I got everything wrong. It's more like, where was I wrong and by how much? And so one thing you can do is, is um, to write out your, your, your assumptions in detail, like the, the math of your assumptions, you know, right. I have, I have 10 users. And if I make this feature, what percent of my users will, will use this feature. And then if they use this feature, um, like how will their behavior change or what, what will they generate as a result of using this feature? Will it be more engagement? Will it be more retention? And if you can make those predictions um, and you, you walk through all the different numbers that you got to, uh, to through the end of the funnel, then when you release it, you can go back and see where you're wrong. And then the next time you go and build a feature, well, if you thought 50% of people would use this feature and it was a button in this corner, um, well, then maybe next time, like you can go back and reference that data and try to understand how many people go and click something that's there. And you start to build this muscle memory of like, Instead of just saying this feels good and I want to do it and you don't learn anything because you're not really like picking apart where it went wrong. Um, you start being able to, in your head, like start to understand more and more over time as you're building this particular product, um, you know, just what levers you have and what impact you can have in different places. So um, in general, I would just say we were very data driven. And I guess like mm -hmm. that's just more of the process side of the data is what I was talking about.
right? So you look at the data and then you pretty much kind of repeat that cycle, right? I see. Okay. And so now I want to kind of move to the expansions that Zynga uh, kind of tried to have or had. Um, so Zynga, I think, was expanding very aggressively uh, to multiple cities. And one of them, I think, was Tokyo and, I mean, Japan, Japanese market, right? And from, if my understanding is correct, you let the, the expansion to the Japan, right? Well, yeah. I mean, I, um, so what happened was actually we, we, we decided to buy a company in Japan. Mm. Um, yeah, and that, that company was called Uno. And mm -hmm. uh, that company was, the CEO of that company was uh, Yamada Shintaro. Yamada-san, Merokali. Yeah, yeah, the Merokali uh, CEO. And um, I, as a part of like uh, that acquisition, I came over to, to help figure out what, what team we should work with. And, um, and then later to help uh, train the team on sort of product management and integrate with uh, the, the broader sort of Zynga company. And so I came over for just under a year to work with the team. Um, and the goal there was to go and see if we could uh, make progress in the Japanese social gaming market, which at the time was very dominated by, uh, you know, mobile gay and, uh, and Gree. Um, and actually that's when I met uh, Takeshi Otsuka-san, who, who oh. was, you know, one of the founders of Playco, is I yeah. met him 10 years ago. And I, I knew he was one of the people uh, at Mobile Gay that was behind their hit game Kaito Royale, and I was I just admired what they were they were doing so much, and um, I heard nothing but good things about him. And I knew I I couldn't I couldn't recruit him to Zynga back in those days, but we kept in touch. <laughs> Finally, got a chance to work together uh, many years later. So it's been very exciting for me. Nice. So ten years of uh, recruitment uh, efforts. Finally, <laughs> he's a part of your team. Awesome, awesome. And so, would you say there's a, like a big difference between the creation of games in Japan and the the one in the United States? Uh, yeah. I mean, that's a good question. I mean, I can't. I, I feel like every team has a very different way of of going uh, about making their games, right? And right. Every, every, so. I haven't had enough experiences across enough teams to compare um, very, very closely. But I will say that um, I think, it, just just my opinion, um, sure. I, I think that Japan is really great at creating IP. I think if, if you look at the track record of, of um, Japan and, and if you look mm -hmm. at some of the, the top 10 grossing IP in the world, um, many of them are from Japan. I'm not remembering the exact count, but it's, it's okay. many of the top on wikipedia there's a page where you can see this stat um and and there's a lot of franchises up there like uh pokemon and um you know the hello kitty and, and these types of characters and stuff i think japan is is has um for for some reason been able to like consistently create a lot of very large um franchises around these characters and i think it's interesting because even some um giant companies like Walt Disney or, or Pixar that are sort of famous for their ability to create these modern high quality um, worlds and, and characters, they, they aren't necessarily on the list. Um, and some mm. of them that are on there are, are quite old. Like, like I think Winnie the Pooh is, is sort of on the list as like one of the American IPs and it's like a very old IP. And many of the Japanese um, are actually very more recent, like in the last 20 or 30 years. And so, um, you know, if I were to just speak looking at the sort of what, what companies have been able to achieve. I'd say like Japan is, is probably one of the best countries in the world when it comes to, to creating those worlds and those, those, uh, those characters. Interesting, interesting, I see. 
And so I want to talk a little bit more about the raising capital for Zynga now. Um, so Zynga received most of its investment from pretty much top tier investors in the Valley uh, and also some international top tier investors like SoftBank, right? Um, so for Series B, you had lead investors that were uh, Craner Perkins, Google and SoftBank. Um, why is it so important to you know, raise capital from these three top tier VCs, you think? Well, um, actually, I, I think we raised from Google, um, not their venture arm at the time, but actually the, the corporate entity, Google. Um, oh, so from was, their balance seed. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And I think it was maybe even before Google had a venture fund. Um, wow. It was around the time that happened. Um, and, and then with Kleiner, um, you know, it was all about the partner. Like we were working with, with Bing Gordon, who was uh, one of the, the um, earliest employees at Electronic Arts. And um, okay. he was... He, Huge, hugely instrumental at, at Zynga for helping us, you know, learn how to become a real games company. And um, so, so it was all about the, the who you're working with, right? Right. Um, with SoftBank, it was, um, you know, this is way before the Vision Fund days. This was a it was a joint venture to go and figure out if we could um, go up against the giants of Japan with with GRI and, and DNA, um, and and work with SoftBank to to help us to to make that happen. And so. All of them were sort of very strategic. Actually, even with the Google investment, Google was launching their own social network at that time called Google Plus. Oh. And as part of that investment, we were um, releasing games on the Google Plus. So um, in, in every case there, it's just like super strategic. It's all about the, the people you're taking money from are all um, adding value in some way beyond the capital. Right, right. And I assume also uh, SoftBank, because you raised money from SoftBank, you were kind of close with them. And when you were coming to Japan, uh, they were the one that helped that helped you uh, come into Japan, right? Yeah, and it was a very interesting time to come into Japan because SoftBank was just releasing the iPhone. And so mm -hmm. the, the whole idea there was that um, we knew we were coming into the world of, of uh, Garake in, in Japan. <laughs> you know, there's these, these the Galapagos K-Tai phones and um, this ecosystem was already very, very uh, competitive with games and, and very big. Um, and we knew that to, to win in that ecosystem would be very difficult because these players, the companies were very established. Um, but we knew that smartphone was coming. And so we, we thought we had a chance to invest in that future uh, of smartphones. And because SoftBank was the first company bringing a smartphone to market with the iPhone, they were starting the new wave that was going to take over Japan. And so that's why we partnered with them. It was, it was to invest in the future of what we thought was coming. And, um, you know, uh, it was ended up being like a really interesting transition to see happen. Like you, I, I feel lucky that I was in Japan during that, that period where I got to see how amazing right. that sort of Thai, uh, ecosystem was, and then to see what it looked like to see smartphones just starting to, to grow. It was a very interesting time to be here. Right, right. And so you receive, you know, capital from not just those top tier VCs, but also other bunch of top tier VCs, like also, I think, Unreasoned Hollow is investing in you guys. And like you mentioned last time, uh, Peter Thiel, uh, and I think Reed Hoffman were also angel investors uh, in Zynga in the very, very early days. Uh, what would you say is the like a really good effects or uh, you know great thing is about receiving capital from those known top tier people. Um, some would say you know uh, it makes you look resilient or it makes you you know easier to raise capital in the later rounds or you know you can kind of how to say get advantage of the network of those investors. What would you say uh, is you know the really good things that you can have from those people? 
Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I don't want to make I don't want to make this seem like you know such a long time ago that I make myself seem seem older than I am. But um, <laughs> it was a lot of those people you described, like Reed Hoffman, uh, mm. Peter Thiel. You didn't mention, but like Fred Wilson in the sort of early investors from Union Square. Um, oh. These are the people who were uh, very early investing in, in social networks. So you know, mm. Peter Thiel, Reed Hoffman with LinkedIn, and and all these investments, even even uh, Fred Wilson with Twitter, like. The, the, the reason we ended up partnering with these people is because they understood what we were trying to do because right. um, Zynga wasn't really a, a games company. It was, it was like this new type of company that was about um, kind of like part social networking, part games. Um, and you had to understand both. And so everybody in that group, um, they just understood what we were doing before other people really did. They're, they're the same group of investors that were investing in these social networks when they were still small and seeing the future in them. Um, they were investing in us. And so, um, yeah, I mean, today they're all like, you know, even more famous than, than they were then. Um, but what I would say is like, they, they predicted this, this wave right in a huge way. And for us, it just meant that we, we could communicate with people that, that um, understood what we were trying to do and why it mattered back when that wasn't a common sort of understanding for people. Right, right. So it wasn't really like a store chasing, you know, like getting just best investors in the valley or more of uh, they are the one that actually understood about what's next big thing, which was Zynga. I see. Interesting. And you mentioned about Union Square Ventures, but for Series A, you receive money from uh, Union Square Ventures. And I assume you, you receive capital another time again, I guess. Um, what would you say was like the deciding factor to choose to work with them? What was the value that they provided to you? Yeah, I mean, it wasn't something that was decided, um, you know, exclusively by me, but like, I can just say that, um, you know, like the, these investors, I mean, they are from from my sort of my last answer like they, they just mm -hmm. understand social networks very very deeply and so like if if we had investors that were from more traditional game companies they probably would have um been they would have misunderstood our story actually like early on when we were building on these social networks and instead we had people who were uh, very interested in fred wilson just totally understanding um, the, the dynamics of social networks and what we were trying to achieve. So it was like just, they were all just really great partners that, that we could work with to go, go after the mission. Right, right. I see. Interesting. Okay. So um, now I want to talk a little bit more about your another identity. I think you have three identities, right? As I mean, well, that's what I understand. One is a co-founder of Zynga. Another is a full-time Android investor that you were, and then now is a president of Preco. So now I want to talk about the second identity of yours, which is Android investor. So after you left Zynga, you started to become a full-time Android investor. Could you tell us a little bit more about how you know that process was, how you became a full-time Angel? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I don't remember having a, a moment where I just decided I'm going to start Angel investing. I think what happened mm -hmm. was I... I these really great people um and i was always interested in starting new things and then all of a sudden some of them started leaving and they were doing new things and um it was just like a way to, to continue working with people that i really liked um and be involved with whatever they were doing when it wasn't zynga anymore or um and so that's just sort of how i got started and so i would say i stumbled into it uh initially um being surrounded by people that were doing interesting things and then i um I, I realized like it's it's actually um, it was a very interesting time to be starting to invest actually mm. about 10 years ago because um, 
you know, there, there were a lot of angels, but it was still sort of manageable. And, you know, um, there weren't so many as there are now. And like a lot of really great companies were getting their start around 10 years ago. I mean, when, when like, was the year that you started investing in NGL, as like an angel ambassador? Maybe 2010 or 2011. So about, about, about 10 years ago. Okay. Well, uh, well, that time, were you at Zynga or? Yeah. Yeah. I was still at Zynga. You know, the first right, years right. I was Zynga. Yeah. Okay. So another really important question that I want to ask uh, is: Should a founder actually invest in other startup while they're founder of one startup? <laughs> um, this is a tough question, right? Uh, <laughs> I think most investors would tell you no because because yeah. they want to be focused, right? Um, I would say it depends on like it, it, there's such a broad spectrum of investing, right? And um, you can learn a lot from investing and right. it depends on investing is, is, is something it, it depends on what they're getting out of it. Like if you want to be, if you want your career to be investing um, if you want to have a fund and run a company at the same time, that's, that's pretty difficult to do. I mean, they're, they're full-time jobs and to succeed in angel investing or seed stage investing in a, in a really big way now requires a lot of dedication. Right. Um, and so it, it depends on what their goals are. Like, right. It, they just, if, if it's like a sort of side project where you're just thinking about something um, because you want to be mentally sort of stimulated by learning new things in other areas that you're not working on in your main, your main company, and it doesn't take up that much time, then I mean, fine. But I guess ultimately it's such a personal decision. Um, and I'll just say like, by the time, by the time I was making angel investments at, investments at Zynga, I mean, the company was, you know, over a thousand people. So right. um, it's not, it's not like um, if I spent three hours talking to somebody uh, it was like, you know, we were reducing the overall output of the company at that point. Um, so right. I guess I would say it just, it also depends on the stage, but, um, for me, like the, the right reasons to angel invest are it, the best reasons for me personally, it's just like, it's to learn and it's to build your network. Mm. Um, and so, like you, when you, you say get- learn, when you say learn, is it to learn from other, you know, great passionate founders in the Valley or, also, it sounds like to stay relevant in the market. Um, what do you mean by learn from, you know, enjoy investing while you are founder of one startup? Well, I mean, it's like you can almost live sort of parallel experiences, right? You can never actually put yourself in the shoes of a founder and, and know everything they're going through. But if you, if you really do your best to help people um, and, and they trust you, then you can get involved in a lot of the key moments of a company. And you can live through these moments that when you're starting your own company, you only get to um, go through them once in a while. And so you can start to build up like a, a better muscle memory for how to approach some of those moments. And so it can make you a better operator, um, depending on how involved you are. Um, and, and there's certain interactions that you can get a lot of practice at. And so um, it's not just in um, sort of like learning about the markets, which is, which is great. I mean, you can go and work with people who are experts in a market that you're not. And you can learn a lot from them and then help them with the, whatever knowledge you have about whatever um, area you have expertise in. Um, but also like there's just sort of muscle memory you can get on these different, like when it comes to raising a series A, if you're an angel investor and you help your, your startups raise their series A, well then you're going to get the experience, some experience of, of raising series A 50 times. Um, and that's <laughs> that really helpful later when you have to go raise your series A, right? That is so, so, so true. Right, right, right. Yeah, I actually had an image of a founder that shouldn't you know, invest in other firm because you should 
use all your capital and you know money, time, everything uh, into the, the baby that you're creating right now. But uh, sounds like if the stage is right, or if you have you know some time to commit to other things, you should definitely start you know investing in other firms. I think. Yeah, that's really interesting, uh, your answer, Justin. Okay. Um, and then another thing that I want to ask is, so you made like about 50 plus investments and some of the notable exits that I recall is uh, Tolo and Viv, I think. Um, Tolo was acquired by Google and Viv was acquired by Samsung, right? Um, what is your criteria of picking, you know, which startups to back? Like what made you, you know, exposed to a bunch of, uh, you know, companies? Um, so I, I think I was like lucky when I, I got involved in angel investing 10 years ago, the, the Silicon Valley's angel community was still a bit smaller. So I started going to Y Combinator demo days and mm. there was only 50, 50 people there or something. And, you know, it was like, it was just much smaller. There were sort of like 10 companies on stage and you could talk to every single one of them after the event. It was, <laughs> it was very different. It was very different time. And so you like, can't I, imagine that now, right? <laughs> no, 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 no. So, so anyway, it, it, things have changed a lot. And so I really like, wow, it's, it's mind blowing and it's, it's awesome. Like it's, it's so good how much innovation is happening now um, yeah. and how many great there are in so many different places all around the world. And so, um, I mean, I, when it comes to identifying, I mean, so much of it just comes from the people you work with. And mm. this is like another reason to go and invest in angel investing companies is because um, you meet more new people, like you meet the people right. that they work with, the investors they work with, and um, who are the great employees from their company. And, and um, you start to build a network that has where the opportunities come to you. And so I guess what I would say is that um, it's just about like, it's a many, many, many turn game. And uh, it's not about like the individual investment. It's about like, mm. I, the more, the longer you do, the more you realize, like you're going to see the same people over and over again, or you'll have the opportunity to work with people in different capacities at different companies for a long time, um, even way more than I ever expected. And so um, it's just about like cultivating relationships with great people and, and staying involved with what they're doing. Right. Now that you mentioned about Y Combinator, I want to talk a little bit more about that. So some of your portfolio companies like Lumber School or Substack, I think they're amazing companies and they're, you know, the graduates of Y Combinator, right? What's your view on the YC companies? I just want to ask. Well, so that, this is a great example. Like I, I don't see Substack as a YC company because oh. I, I was an advisor to Kick Messenger where, where Chris was uh, one of the co-founders of, of that company. Oh, really? So oh, okay, okay. I mean, I, I knew him for, um, I mean, five years before he started some Substack. And I was mm -hmm. in, I was advising him on his previous company. And so this is what I really mean. Like the, these connections, <laughs> build them and you work with people. And in Jiraj, the other founder of Substack, like, you know, I worked with him on some projects where we literally were building um, some, some messenger platforms together that are related to what I'm working on today. And so a lot of these stories, they, they sort of weave together and, and come full circle in interesting ways. Um, and so the second that I heard that, um, you know, Jiraj and Chris were working on something, it was just like, and then it happened to be in an area that I thought was um, super interesting and that I'm really passionate about, which is like figuring out how to empower more people who aren't sort of in technology to get leverage right. from technology, to go build their own sort of businesses or um, to create more freedom for them to, to learn something new or to, to um, take their talents and, and be able to uh, make a living from it. Like it was just easy.
to do that one. Right, right, right. Everyone is connected, right? Especially in the Valley. I think it's a, a lot of people think it's a very like big community, but also at the same time for top people, it's a very small community, I think. And so you say you don't actually see Southstock as a YC company, but again, could I ask like, what's your, maybe like a general view of YC? Is it like a better, you know, really good place to source uh, your deals if you're an angel? What would you say? So, because some people, some investors said after the company joined YC, they may be sometime overvalued uh, and it gets difficult to invest in those firms. Uh, what, what's your view on this? I mean, venture is all about picking the right companies, right? Mm. So um, if, if you would, I mean, I wouldn't worry about uh, the average company. I don't really have an opinion on whether they're overvalued, but like, I, I okay. wouldn't even you just were to index all of YC companies. Um, I don't know that that's a good strategy. Like I, I think I think VC is is all about trying to pick the, the most the companies that are most likely to succeed. Um, and what I'll say is that like I've been amazed at how many um, different verticals YC has been able to expand into, and I think it's great because they're bringing the sort of things that have succeeded in software to all these different industries now. Um, I'll say that I. I don't invest in some of those companies because I can't diligence them as an angel. Like I don't have a team to go and and do all the work required to understand um, right. every company that they now have in in their portfolio. But I, I just love hearing about it and like learning about these new things. So, mm-hmm. um, I mean, I think in general, like YC has been just hundred percent positive for, for the startup ecosystem. And then I think like it all comes down to, um, you know, at the end of the day, picking the right company, because any of the companies that were really hugely successful from YC, Mm-hmm. Um, there's, mm-hmm. there's nobody that like is, is really upset about the valuation they got at YC. Right. I mean, it, it was just a very early stage in the company. And so, right. um, so they're all very happy investors. So right. it doesn't really change the equation, which is like, you really just want to end up, um, working with the best teams. True, true, true. And you mentioned about team right now, but so all those 50 investments, you invest it without having any team, right? How, how do you like do the due diligence? Or like, you know, like, how do you get you know, source deals? How do you manage all the emails from your founders? How, how did all thing happen? Yeah, there's a, there's a huge mix there. Okay. So like some people like Chris and Jiraj, you know, if, if I know they're doing a company, like I don't have to do any diligence really. I mean, <laughs> That's true. I have a very quick conversation and, and I'm happy to be involved with their next thing. Um, and there's been a lot of great people I've, I've worked with like that, actually like Exinga folks, um, like, like Roger Dickey's, both of his companies and um, even Andy Tian, who started a company who was former uh, GM of Zynga Beijing. Um, so like, there's been a lot of great um, companies that have come out of those types of deals where it was just someone great, like I, I wanna work with them again. And there's not, there's not a whole lot of diligence to do. Um, when it comes to like other uh, types of companies that like didn't come directly from my network, I think I really, I really value people that come in with a warm introduction. Right. I mean, I, I think right. at the end of the day, like if, if, if someone's able to get in touch with me through somebody, I really trust that means a lot. And so like, I always try to take the time to meet with people who, who come in through that, that way. I think, um, of course, like going through your email and, and, and digging into every sort of, um, introduction or not introduction, but just like a pitch that's sent to me without an introduction, it's, mm-hmm. it's, it's, just be too time consuming without a team. Right. Right. So, um, it's not to say that I haven't replied to those emails before. Um, I, I mean, I think I, there have been situations where I've replied to those and probably some situations where I've ended up investing in, in those types of companies. Mm. Um, but in general, 
It's just, it's just, it's much more difficult for me to do without the bandwidth. Mm, right, right. And what will be the value that you provide to those founders? So you mentioned that you may not actually do a lot of diligence if you know the founders or if you actually understand the market, right? Um, so you may be a really a good expert for those founders that's doing gaming companies, uh, but for other founders, what's the value that you provide to them? Well, so I actually haven't done that many investments in game companies, which is, oh. which is kind of kind of interesting. Actually, like all the companies I'm talking about from ex Zynga found, uh, ex Zynga employees or people uh -huh. that I work with past, um, they, none of them really started game companies after for the most part. Um, and I, what I would say is like one thing to, one way to look at games is like in many ways, it's, it's just consumer applications. Um, sure. and, and actually in, in some ways, not always, it can be one of the most difficult places to build consumer applications. It's, it's very, very competitive market. That um, is every games has, has so much competition. And so if you can succeed in games, um, it's, it's, it's a very good practice to succeed in other markets. Um, one of the nice things about game companies is like you can build, you need operational excellence to succeed in games. Like you, it's very rare that you can succeed for an extended period of time uh, with a game uh, unless you're very, very good at operating it um, over mm -hmm. time. So if people can bring that skill set with them and then they get a chance to succeed on another type of consumer app, um, they usually are like, you know, they, they really got the skill set they need to go and to go and um, to do a great job there. So I would say that um, in a lot of ways, like those experiences, how do you grow a game? How do you decide what to work on next? Um, the roadmap and, and all of this, like how do you differentiate in a crowded and competitive market? Um, these are things that you can bring from games into anything in consumer. Um, and it's all, it's all pretty applicable. And I'm not saying like the, the more people tend to think it's how do you gamify these other experiences? I'm actually, mm. generally speaking, I, I don't think that you should. I don't think you should okay. gamify more experiences actually. Um, but when it comes to like, what are some of the ways you can improve retention? How do you, how do you measure these things and how do you figure out what to build next? These are all like, these are uh, skills that are just sort of like, operating skills that you get from building consumer products. Um, and that's what drives um, what succeeds for the most part. So in some ways, I just think games is a great training ground for, for people to, to get good at these skills. Right. I see. Interesting. Yeah. Cause uh, when I was looking at your portfolio companies, I was a bit confused because I saw like, you're really like a game guy. So you would invest in a bunch of games. And I had this image of like, uh, when I look at the portfolio, was it like a drive time, which was like a company that would allow you to do game while driving uh when i saw that i was like okay this is the kind of a company that justin invests in but when i look at other firms it was like snack pass or other firms that's like uh food delivery services i think you invest in a few of them uh i was i got a bit of confused but now that you explain that it, it makes sense well i mean let me give you just a quick example so sure. um with uh well so like I could explain how even like a, any of these investments sort of relates to lessons maybe I learned from Zynga, whether it be operational or just even business models. So if you think about a company like Lambda School, um, like it's really hard to imagine how, like what, what would you see in that company that reminds you of some of your experiences that I, it resonated with me very quickly. Um, and one of them was, um, well, first of all, Austin is an amazing founder. Um, he's just, he's really, really great. Um, and, and so that was like the, the first thing that got me hooked. But the, the second thing is like from a, from a business model perspective, yep. actually Lambda School is doing to education 
what Zynga did to games. And so I mentioned earlier, um, what, what did Zynga do to games? We took the friction off the front end. We took the risk off the front end. Before there was risk in buying a game. You spent $50 and you'd bring it home. And a lot of times you would not like what you got. If you look at Lambda School, you have a bunch of people that have the same experience with university. They spend $20,000 or $100,000 and they don't like what they get. Um, and so my, my question was like, well, how do you turn this into the experience like freemium brought to games with Zynga? Mm. And that to me, I think freemium is, is like one of the native sort of web experiences for how these, these different um, businesses have to be remodeled into, to exist. And so when I look at Lambda School, it's like you make it free up front. Um, and when you do that, you de-risk it. And so you can do all these things around um, how to make it social and how to make it way more inclusive and the types of people who can get access to the education. And then on the tail end, they pay you if it works. Um, so if you abstract it like that, it's in many it's, ways- It's, it's so <laughs> similar. Yeah, it's yeah. so similar. Yeah, for the, for the audience sake to give more introduction about Lambert School. So basically Lambert School uh, is a coding school and for usual coding school, you need to pay fee upfront uh, and you don't know the outcome, right? But for Lambert School, you don't have to pay upfront uh, and after you graduate and you will get a position at a software company, they deduct some of the, uh, so they basically get some uh, of the, the money of the salary you get at that firm, right? That's the how Lambda School works now. Yeah, it's very similar to what Zynga was doing, kind of democratizing the whole industry, right? Yeah, and if you don't, if you don't get a job, then, then you don't pay anything. And so it removes the risk for, for the people that are going to school. And I know this is, a really, um, this is a very real problem for a lot of people over the last you know, 10 years or so when many people have come out of school without a job. And so the, the value right. to those well, it's very obvious um, because they have friends who have been through this or brothers and sisters. And so to me, um, I see this as like a potential solution to that problem. And so, um, yeah, I got really excited about that. And like, I think it, there's always something about these companies that I feel like is, um, it's not always something I learned from Zynga. Of course, I'm learning things from the investments I'm making all the time. Sure. Um, so it's, it's just, there's something that I, you know, uh, that I've learned along the way that makes me excited about it in addition to the team and, in, in their approach. Mm, very interesting. Very interesting indeed. Okay. And so another thing that I want to ask is, is there like a core investor that you always invest together with or is there like, there's none? Um, there's just a lot of friends that I, I share things with. And I, I think you, you start to know like who gets excited about what types of things. Right. And so mm. it really just depends on the type of company. Um, you know, my, there's a lot of people that I love to work with, but they don't all get excited about the same types of things. And that's fine. Mm. It's just like, you know, if you, if you want to go to a certain restaurant, if you want to go to sushi, you bring a friend who likes sushi, right? And if, <laughs> if I want to, I'm going to go share it with people who like game companies. So it just depends. Um, but Makes yeah, sense. I mean, there's a lot of great people uh, that I've been able to invest with multiple times. And some of them, you know, I was able to uh, have... Get, to get them involved with Playco. So that's been great. Right, right, right. And so speaking of uh, someone that you see as an interesting investor, I think that will be Peter Thiel. And you are a mentor for Thiel Foundation and also you are an individual investor, uh, I mean, individual LP for Founders Fund, right? Um, how would you describe your relationship with Peter Thiel or your view on Peter as an investor or businessman? Uh, well, I think... I'm glad that I'm glad that Peter wrote zero to one because I, I think that like 
that type of thinking, um, he's such a clear thinker and that, that his, his thesis in the book is like, is, is so, uh, it's articulated so well. And I think it's so important. Um, and it resonated, it resonates with me so much about like the things that I learned. And it, to me, it seems like something that's, that's very important. And so it's, it's nice that that's out there because what I would say to anyone is like, if you want to really learn about, about how Peter thinks, you shouldn't listen to me, you should, you should go read that book. Um, and the great thing about it is it, it's not sort of like a, a marketing piece or like your typical business book. Like it really is very, very deep thinking from someone who, who truly understands the market and um, I guess what I would say is like this idea of being contrarian, um, but truly being contrarian and and um, like exercising that muscle and in trying to figure out like, what are the, I, I think at one point, like there's this, um, I think an interview question that Peter said that he likes, which is um, what is something you think is true that almost no one agrees uh, with you on? And I think like, this is something that, um, that that type of thinking, I think, is something he's really he's really great at, and um, that's, I, you know, I've always, if I have a chance to work with him on something, it's of course like I love to um, get founders fund involved. I mean, this is why I, I actually um, so I made some investments in Japan, and um, Smart, um, you know, of course, like founders funds, founder fund, their their APAC. Uh, Scout Fund invested in, in their last right. round. The Asia Pacific Fund, right? And Smart Rounds is the uh, kind of a SAR software as a service for venture investors and founders. Yep. Right. Interesting. Okay. And so now I want to talk a little bit about specific deals, uh, which is, I mean, I talk about Lamba and Substack, which were something that I wanted to cover, but about Tolo and Biv, which were your successful exit, one of the successful exits. And for Biv, um, it raised about 30 million uh, till Series B. And after four years since 2012, it got acquired uh, by Samsung. Could you explain about what the Viv, uh, the company is and uh you know, how did you, how you got into the deals? Well, so Viv was, was basically building a, um, a voice assistant, um, like Siri before that really existed for most other platforms outside of iOS. Um, and the idea was that it would be, um, much more advanced than, than other, uh, platforms because they were just focused on solving that problem exclusively. Mm -hmm. Um, and uh, yeah, Samsung, Samsung bought it because obviously as a way to compete with Apple, um, that was, that was hmm. important. Right? And actually the people that were at Viv, um, several of the team members were the folks who were behind um, Siri previously. So like oh. they, they really knew what they were doing. And their idea was like that Siri became sort of something else at Apple um, that they never were able to fulfill the vision they'd set out to fulfill. Um, and oh. so like this, this is what resonates with me, you know, like this whole, like this longer journey thing about mm. people that, they're on these, these, these companies are, they're on a timeline and some people are chasing themes or like an idea for a much longer period. Um, and you know, like, that's why I'm back, you know, now we're, we're doing Playco. It's like, this is right. something that I've been thinking about for a long time. So the same thing with Viv, it was like, it's one of those situations where you have somebody who's really excited about this future and they just didn't quite get to create it the first time around. Mm. I see, I see. And how about Tolo? So Tolo was the company that was founded in the same year, 2012. Uh, and right after two years, it got acquired by Google, right? And it's a company that does a Facebook campaign, was it? Yeah, well, so so Toro was actually started by uh, the, the team that was 
probably half the team were, were the people who, who were building and who made Farmville at Zynga. And so this is an example I knew really well. Um, and they were just like, they're an example of the team that you don't do diligence on. You just go ahead and you're like, yes, <laughs> right. with you again. These are great people um, and they're, they're close friends. So um, that one, <laughs> I wish I had an interest, more interesting story there. Yeah, they're the Farmville guys. <laughs> right, right. I mean, it's always, I think, but sometimes it's like that, right? They're the friend from the really good company and you invest in them because they're the friend, you trust them. And then you actually get some good amount of capital gain too, uh, as an angel. Interesting. Okay. So now I want to talk about Playco, your new company, which had a successful, um, series a hundred million of funding. Um, before we go into specific, um, could you tell me, you know, what Playco is again? So, uh, Playco is focused on something very, very simple. Um, that seems so simple that it, it almost seems like, it, sh it shouldn't be um, enough to, to go and build a huge company on. It's, it's a very basic idea, which is you should be able to play games with your friends very easily. Um, and so I started alluding to this earlier and um, in the very beginning of the podcast, but you know, it turns out um, it's such an obvious thing to say. People want to play with their friends. Mm. Everybody would agree with this. And the market for this is literally everyone. If you just say people want to play with their friends, this is everyone, my grandmother, your grandmother, everybody wants to interact and have positive interactions with the people they care about, um, whether it's family, friends, um, or people that just they, they want to connect with, right? Um, and that is, it's just too difficult to do right now. And because it's too difficult, um, it's actually surprisingly uncommon. And, and so you have this thing that if you could successfully make it work in a way that it, it should, and that's easy enough that it could be something that we all do and that we all do regularly. Um, you know, we're on Zoom right now and Zoom solved the problem of how do you make video chat easy? Right. It's, not just, it's not just coronavirus that makes us all using video chat right now. It's also that Zoom really solved the problem. I mean, video chat has been around for um, like what, over 10 years, right? Um, right. And in, in many ways it's been buggy. It's been very difficult to use. And so people didn't use it. But even before coronavirus, Zoom was growing like crazy because they figured out how to make it so easy. You just drop a link, tap it, and you're, you're chatting. And it's so predictable the way that it works. And so if you think about Zoom, they have that, that link that you just send and you never worry about like, is, is he on an iPhone or what is he using and what does right. he have to do? Um, and we're building that experience for games. Um, and what that means is that you can just hop, hop into a game with me just as predictably as you could expect me to jump on zoom without any issues except for i would say i would go one step further and say that it'll be even easier for you to play a game um using our our, our tech than, than zoom because zoom some people still download the app right you can use it in a web browser but a lot of people still use the app and our games like it, it's not even necessary um and so we're excited about like the new experiences that we'll create because we all have we all have these mobile devices with messengers and with video chat on them and you know, what other types of experiences can we have now that we're in these spaces together? Like what, what types of things do we wanna be doing in, in a Zoom chat together? I've seen people going and playing poker games where they, they all say, okay, everybody load up this URL in your web browser and we'll all go to this website together and play poker together. Like, why isn't that part of the experience right in front of us? Why isn't it integrated into this experience? It's something that's easy for us to do. Um, these are the problems we're going out and solving. So we're working with a bunch of these partner companies that, that um, have these social services 
um, whether it's messengers or video chats and, and, and other types of uh, social services and just trying to figure out like what is the best experience for each of these and uh, what types of activities do people want to do in this space? How can we help people connect in a way that's more meaningful? Right. So, and you team up with Michael Carter. And when I heard that news about two weeks ago uh, on TechCrunch, I was blown away. And because I knew by Michael, uh, he has a really good experience in venture capital industry, but also he started Game Closure. And Game Closure was uh, pretty much doing very similar thing, right? Uh, you, you can play game on the HTML. And he moved his company, which was in the Bay Area, to Japan because he, what, I, what he told me was that because there are you know, bigger markets for gaming in Japan, why Preco was founded in Japan? Was it for the same reason? Well, um, it's, a, it's a great question. Uh, what I'll say in general is that um, game companies have been already um, recently, the largest game companies have been growing outside of the U.S. So when we think about the biggest, most exciting recent game companies that have been um, invested in or have just been making a lot of news. We think about like Playrix, you know, they're in Europe. Um, we think about Wildlife, they're in Latin America. Um, these, these companies, like probably of the top 10 game companies right now that are sort of private, large, fast growing mobile game companies, the majority of them are no longer in the US. Um, so this transition has happened. It's already been happening. <laughs> and so what we're seeing is that this talent is everywhere. And in, in, the, in a world where this talent is, is really everywhere and they're, they're learning and, and they're excelling at these different companies all around the world now, um, like how should a company be architected to succeed when that's the future? And so, you know, 13, 14 years ago, maybe the answer was start a company in San Francisco. Right. Um, do that. But today, that, I don't think that's the answer, actually. And so it's already playing out that these companies are succeeding in a very big way. And so what we wanted to do was figure out how do we take advantage of this idea and this fact that there are great people all around the world? And I think um, being having a strong presence in Japan is huge because there's a, such a rich history of gaming here. There's some of the best gaming companies in the world and the, the talent like of creating these characters and these stories um, that I mentioned before, this is something that's, um, it, Japan is the, the, the leader in the world in this type of uh, business. And so what inspired me is I think that there's an opportunity to, to work with um, the best people in Japan and work with the best people in Silicon Valley. And then um, to have sort of one leg in Silicon Valley and one leg in, in Japan, and then be distributed everywhere in the world uh, and build this sort of new type of company where we have a strong base in, in places that are really important. But then we also have employees um, that are everywhere. And so we've been building the company in this distributed fashion and, and we have uh, a lot of employees in you know many many different countries all around the world now and we work um remotely we're growing very quickly during the age right. of covid and all done over video chat maybe that's the new definition of the new international startup right one leg in, in silicon valley and one leg in japan because you know us is a still really big market if you you know kind of have a kind of monopoly in the US, uh, you can go bigger in the international market, but also you need to cover Asia market, right? Especially in the gaming uh, 
Understood. And okay, I have another two final questions. So another one would be you raised hundred million dollars for Series A. That's a big, big, big uh, raising, especially for the venture industry in Japan. Uh, what's the hundred million for? Uh, rather than the stuff that you mentioned, something that you're building right now, you already hired seventy five people, right? So I assume a lot of things are going to go on there. But could you tell us something that you can tell here? Yeah, I mean, so I, I think we're thinking about this from a very long term perspective, right? And so um, the people and the partners that we have, they, they understand that. And it's not that what we're doing is, is super capital intensive, like we're going to go build one giant game that requires $100 million mm. to build. It's more like we have so much interesting territory we need to explore um, that, you know, we that it's all very, very compelling. Not like we're searching for something that'll work. Um, it's like, we have a lot of things. We're very confident that the, the work and that people are going to love. And, and we want to make sure we're making progress on, on an, a bunch of them. And so I, 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 earlier I said at Zynga, we, we had this, you know, we had many games that succeeded before we got to Farmville. Um, and we're still in the early stages of Playco where we have products out already, um, actually that are succeeding and we're just not ready to talk about them yet. Mm -hmm. Um, and then we're learning a lot from those. And we're going to keep learning and, and keep iterating and releasing more and, and discovering more like how these things work. Um, and our hope is that like every we're learning something from everything we release, whether it's a feature or a game, we're always making progress toward fulfilling our vision as we're describing it. Right. And someday, maybe, you know, in a few years, we have our farm built and all of a sudden there's a game that has over a billion people playing it at once. Um, and, it sounds crazy, um, but we think we think it's achievable. Um, you know, back when when Farmville came out, it had three quarters of everybody on Facebook was playing the game. Um, and and if, if that happened today, with how big the ecosystem is, it would be it would be something like over two billion people would be playing this game. And so the fact that people haven't been able to achieve that has to do with the structure of the mobile games market. The way all the games are distributed now is only through advertising. Um, and that's very limiting in the sense that the only way to grow faster is to make more revenue for each user right. that comes and then you can mm -hmm. reinvest that. In advertising. And there's right. nothing like wrong with this model, except for the fact that it actually incentivizes developers not to make games that you can play with your friends. Mm. So, um, and this isn't obvious to most people, but every player that you purchase through an ad that doesn't spend money will lower the amount of money you make per player. And so if I bought two users and one of them spends money and one of them doesn't, well, that right. person who doesn't is lower the average amount of money that it made per user, right? And so the game companies have become excellent at targeting the players who are likely to spend money. And a lot of the ad technology has been about making that easier to do and, and more precise. Um, the unfortunate side effect of this is um, not everyone wants to spend money in games. And so uh, <laughs> when someone plays with your friends, if they're not a if they're not a spender, well then they're not getting the advertisement. And so if you've ever wondered why do I play this game and none of my friends play, it's because everybody's being targeted for the exact thing that's right for them, and no one's focused on making a game that everyone can play together because the economics right. don't work. This current advertising ecosystem, and so we need a we need to figure out the technology and the design around an ecosystem that will support people to discover these games in a way that's very frictionless and low cost. And so those are the problems that we're solving. And when we solve that, then we can go and make games that people can play with their friends. Why did you raise money from Sequoia? 
So Michael, he already had a company in Japan, Game Crojo, right? And I think he got funded by 500 startups and Benchmark. And they were already like some of the top tier investors in the Bali, right? Why Sequoia? I mean, again, like I think it comes back to partners and building a business, right? I think sure. there's always somebody who you can, if you're working with people who really understand what you're doing, um, then you have the, the space you need to go and get it done, the support that you need. Um, to, to go and do something bigger than you could have done without them. And so, I mean, Sequoia is just one of those partners. So, I mean, it's um, for us, like, you know, we're happy to have the, the chance to do it. I see. I see. Okay. And I think we've been seeing this trend of uh, kind of a celebrity VCs or celebrity investors, right? So uh, for your Series A, you had um, um, Keisuke Honda uh, from Keisuke Angel Fund and also um, Will Smith from Dreamers Fund, right? Um, some, what are the values that those celebrity you know, VCs provide to you? Well, we're, we're trying to build uh, experiences and games that have huge appeal, right? Mm. And these folks like, I mean, Will Smith, he's, he's uh, you know, I'm not an expert in Hollywood, but I think he's the mm. most bankable actor in Hollywood. I think he's like, um, if you get him in a movie, uh, it's like the highest ROI you can get out of any actor. <laughs> sure. I think that's the stat. Um, and so like, these are people that are mass market. They understand um, what people like the masses want. It's not about making this game. That's, that's um, some game that like a very small amount of people will play obsessively. It's about how do we make something that everybody loves? Um, and I think people like, like Will and, and Keisuke, like, they understand that, you know, that's, that's a lot of what their, their work has been about. Um, and, and also like, honestly, they're, um, great people. Like, I think both of them are, you know, in case is like working on a lot of important things in Japan and outside of Japan. So, um, it's just been good to get to know them. And like, I think they're going to be super helpful, um, partners in the business, just like everybody else. Will be. Everybody that we've, uh, I mean, for us, it's most important that everyone we're working with is strategic. So right. they're just in the same as everyone else. Got it. Got it. Thank you so much, Justin. So that was my uh, final question. But do you have anything you want to say to the audience, especially that want to work for Preco? Um, well, I mean, please reach out. I mean, we're, we're hiring uh, quickly right now and um, we are hiring everywhere. So, I mean, it, it doesn't oh, not really only matter Japan. where you live. Oh, yeah. Yeah. As long as you as long as you have an Internet connection that's, that's <laughs> stable and you're excited about what we're doing, um, we want to talk. So um, please, please reach out. Um, and, and what I would say is like, I leave you with this, which is just that there's a, there's a company that you go to when you want information, it's Google. There's a company you go to when you want sort of social interaction, it's Facebook. Um, there's a company that you go to when you want to buy something, it's Amazon. There's still no company that you can go to to play with friends. Um, and we think that this is like so obvious that it's painful. Um, and so, um, you know, there's a lot of problems we have to solve along the way, but we're, we're making good progress. And if, if you're excited about like that future of trying to build a company that has, you know, ambitions that are that broad, then like, please, you know, reach out. We love to talk. Okay. A link in the description guys. All right. Well, Justin, thank you so much for being here. I kept you in an hour. I know we're very busy. I really appreciate you for being here and audience, I think have learned a lot from this episode. Thank you so much. Bye-bye. Thanks for having me, Rion.